Hello, everyone. My name is Stuart Shanker. Welcome back to the Shanker Chronicles podcast, which is being brought to you by Self-Reg Global. In this series, I'm going to be looking at some of the most important issues of the day from an historical, uh, political, scientific, and a philosophical approach. Today, I want to um, pick up on something that I touched on in my first podcast, and that's the anger epidemic that we're seeing today. Uh, it's you know it's impossible to pick up the paper without reading about the latest outrage. Uh, we're seeing you know attacks on doctors and health professionals. Uh, we're seeing um, uh, there was a case recently where a nurse was attacked uh, for giving a man's wife a COVID uh, vaccine. Um, service employees, airline flight attendants are being attacked. So all of this is disturbing. Um, but in self-reg, remember, we're always asking why. And I'm sure that this is a pretty complex question. Uh, today, I only want to look at uh, one aspect of this, and it's a very interesting aspect. All of the protests um, continually make the same point. Uh, that the uh, individual sees this as an attack on their personal freedom. And uh, I think that, you know, if you look at this from the various uh, perspectives I mentioned at the outset, that's an interesting comment and I think a fairly profound one. So that's what I want to dig into a little bit today. Now, um, freedom is... Um, you know, it's really the central focus of my last book of Reframed. And all of chapter nine is about what I would call the psychological dimension of freedom. Um, and in essence, uh, the chapter explores how we lose our freedom when we go into red brain. Uh, the reason for that is that freedom, as we have long understood the term, refers to our ability to choose. Uh, and that's exactly what we lose when we go into red brain. I think it's, uh, you know, fairly clear that we are seeing a red brain epidemic today. And um, again, there will be lots of reasons why that's happening and lots of reasons why um, uh, this may not quite be as much about freedom as about other subcortical impulses. But I want to look at this um, from a different angle today, something that I don't talk about in Reframed. And that's the very close connection between freedom and constraint. And I thought I'd start off just telling you that uh, for me, this is a deeply personal issue. Uh, I've never really talked about my dad. Uh, he was an extraordinary human being, um, incredibly bright. Uh, maybe the brightest human I've ever met, compassionate and, and really uh, deeply ethical um, in so many different ways. But he was also a very angry man. Uh, now, uh, the focus of his anger was always the same. It was the attack on his personal freedom. A lot of that had to do, of course, with his experience during the Second World War and his absolute 
horror of um, anything that would threaten democracy, his horror of authoritarianism. But um, when my sister and I were growing up, it had actually morphed into something else. Um, and that was my father's anger towards uh, social convention. Uh, he felt oppressed by uh, social conventions that uh, we take for granted. And um, I know that uh, when we were growing up, uh, it used to amuse us no end. Uh, the symbol of his protest was he would wear white socks. This became a big deal for him. Uh, and so, um, you know, if he was wearing a suit or whatever he was wearing, he would uh, wear white socks and draw attention to the fact that he was wearing white socks. That was my father's big protest. Uh, and for us, as kids growing up, we just thought it was kind of kind of sad because nobody really cared. Um, but uh, uh, you have to understand how much of my childhood was, you know, sort of consumed with this, with this uh, um, protest against um, what he called social tyranny, the tyranny of, of uh, social convention. And it's kind of relevant because when I got to Oxford, so I went to Oxford to do an undergraduate degree in philosophy, politics, and economics, PPE. And one of the very first essays I was assigned in uh, political philosophy was um, to comment on the very first line of Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's social contract. Uh, and that's the famous line, uh, man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. So uh, that's a great line. Um, you know, it's probably that single line did more to spark off the Enlightenment than any other uh, writing you can think of. It's enormously influential. And social contract, uh, Rousseau's social contract in 1762 was enormously influential. But you have to remember where I was coming from, uh, the way I had been raised by my father. Uh, and so when asked to comment on the social contract, uh, I, in fact, well, I did not like the man. I did not like the kind of person that Rousseau was. And I definitely didn't like the social contract. So I'll just very briefly explain why, because it has an awful lot of bearing on uh, what I want to talk about today. Rousseau's basic argument is that uh, freedom is a human birthright and that we, uh, we basically um, give up that freedom when we decide to live in a civil society. So um, we join civil society because of the protections that it affords us, that uh, you know, it preserves our safety. Um, and for me, that was, first of all, um, you know, it's, it's a sort of, uh, he, he's conflating uh, liberty and freedom. So liberty meaning that you are uh, allowed to do whatever you choose as a citizen, provided that it doesn't harm anyone else. And freedom, as, as, I, as I said before, just basically meaning the ability to choose. Uh, so... Um, what he was saying was, I mean, the basic argument 
is that um, when we decide to live in a civil society, we choose to conform to the general will. Uh, and so the choice here is we are choosing to stay in that society. If you stay in that society, then um, in exchange for the security you receive, you agree tacitly to accept the consensus views. Uh, now, to translate this into modern terms, if the consensus view is that everyone should get vaccinated um, because only in that way can we achieve herd immunity. And in fact, it looks like um, we've got all kinds of uh, scientific evidence, so epidemiological evidence, that that is correct, that that public health idea has been borne out, both in the failures um, that we see, for example, in Sweden, which has been a huge failure, this idea that you would reach herd immunity uh, by letting the virus run its own course, um, and that has been a disaster. But we also see it now uh, in uh, the resurgence of COVID in Europe, which has been shown is directly tied to those elements of the societies uh, that were not vaccinated. So it looks like, and we see the same thing in, in Southern states where in the US, where there are low rates of vaccination. So um, here's a case then where, uh, where the general will, that's Rousseau's term, is that everyone agrees if they want to live here uh, to get vaccinated. And if you don't want to get vaccinated, then the choice you make is uh, you must leave. Uh, and that's his argument. So, uh, I mean, it doesn't take much imagination uh, uh, to see how my dad would have responded to this argument. Um, he would have seen this as yet another form of tyranny. And I think a lot of the protesters also see this as a form of tyranny, the tyranny of you know, the majority. You know, that's an important point, but uh, you know, I'm always trying to go deeper, trying to dig deeper. And in that essay I wrote, uh, the, the question that really bothered me was, you know, so, I mean, granted, you know, I, I saw this as uh, a recipe for uh, what Isaiah Berlin warned against when he warns against this idea of positive liberty, forcing people to be free. Uh, that's a scary idea. And it had, and it played out in a very scary way in, in, during the Cold War. But uh, the part that bothered me um, as a young philosopher was this idea that freedom is our human birthright. Uh, I wasn't quite clear what exactly that meant. Um, you know, if, first of all, you know, if you look at uh, primitive societies, um, they are, if anything, even more, uh, you know, even more socially constrained. Um, uh, there's, and it's, it's very difficult to think of primitive humans like Homo habilis as, as thinking about freedom. Um, really, this is an enlightenment obsession. Uh, freedom only became this, this sort of rallying cry uh, towards the end of the 18th century. And Rousseau had 
clearly had a lot to do with that. Uh, uh, I don't see the same, uh, you know, sort of obsession with freedom, not even in earlier societies, not even during the age of reason. There's a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, uh, certain individuals stand out like Descartes, but, but otherwise freedom really only is, it's a, it's, it's a very modern thing. And um, psychologically, um, it doesn't really, you know, this was the thing that bothered me when I was writing this paper. Psychologically, it doesn't make much sense either. Because um, if you look at children, uh, babies, uh, they're certainly not free. Uh, They are what we call stimulus response creatures. Uh, And that's that's a point that Stanley and I looked at carefully in the first idea, how you know, the road to freedom uh, is a developmental uh, pathway, uh, and it lies in building pauses between stimulus and response. Um, To be free means that you don't respond automatically to a stimulus, uh, that you have a chance to um, exercise a choice. And that's very much one of the reasons why uh, in self-reg we put so much emphasis on asking why and why now. It's to interrupt that stimulus response connection. I didn't see this idea that we're born free. Um, And certainly in the last 30 years, there has been uh, really a sustained attack by psychologists on the rationalist view of freedom. Um, If you're interested in this, I mean, you know, the argument is basically that freedom is an illusion. Um, that we really don't have the capacity to choose that we think we do. Uh, And this is very much, um, you know, the sort of centerpiece of the psychology of reasoning, um, you know, which shows how uh, when we think we are choosing, in fact, we are following some sort of uh, script that's been written into our brains or written by our culture. uh, we may think we're choosing freely, but in fact, we can show that uh, we are, quote, predictably irrational. And then there's been some really, you know, straight out assaults on the idea of freedom. Um, if, uh, you know, if, if you're interested, the book to read would be uh, Michael uh, Gazaniga's um, uh, attack on uh, the, the very idea of free will. The book is called Who's in Charge? Uh, and it's an attempt to show that, that um, you know, this is a quaint uh, rationalist uh, um, myth uh, that, in fact, we are creatures ruled by our subcortex. Um, but uh, the more I've thought about this, the more I've come to feel that maybe uh, Rousseau had actually um, seen something pretty important. Uh, and maybe the emphasis isn't the first part of that sentence, it's the second, the idea that we are everywhere in chains. And what we do see in children, what we do see in adults, is a natural aversion to constraint. Constraint um, basically uh, triggers anger. Now, uh, we see this in we see this in an infant. Um, you know, we see this in a toddler. Uh, try putting a toddler into a car seat. Uh, we see this obviously in teens. We see this in every teen. We don't like 
constraint and we respond to constraint with an angry outburst. The reason for that is pretty damn interesting. Uh, and I'll get to that in a second. But what we start to do with children is we condition them to accept constraint without becoming angry. And uh, you'll all be familiar with, you know, uh, frustration tolerance. Uh, the child who has poor frustration tolerance is essentially the child who gets very angry when we try to constrain or restrain them. Um, and so what we're trying to do is socialize a child to accept constraint without becoming angry. Uh, and we do it in all sorts of ways. Uh, maybe we do it with, a, with their desk where, um, you know, they, they uh, can't really move about. The chair is attached to the desk. Maybe we do it earlier where they're constrained to sit on a small carpet with all the other children listening to a story. Or we constrain them by standing over them or we constrain them with our voice. So we're constantly um, trying to condition children to become what Rousseau describes, to become someone who willingly uh, accepts the social conventions uh, of, their, uh, of their group, of their society, without becoming angry. Um, and that uh, kind of, it sheds a very interesting light on the anger epidemic. So let's take as a very simple example, um, people that are so become you know, somewhat violent, uh, verbally, if not physically, um, when asked to wear a mask. Now, wearing a mask is, in fact, a form of constraint. Um, and I think we can assume that that constraint, that feeling of constraint, uh, that feeling of claustrophobia is more acute for some than for others. Um, and uh, what's, what happens in that kind of person um, when forced to wear a mask is it triggers uh, sympathetic arousal and, uh, as I'll explain in two seconds, it, it, it triggers a, a very deep system in the brain, um, which produces epinephrine, which produces, uh, which fuels anger. And that's the part of all this that I find most interesting. Um, and then the converse of this is, you know, if you take off the mask, if you're someone who has this feeling of constraint, this feeling of claustrophobia, removing the, the mask is more than just a, you know, a, a statement of independence or whatever. Um, there's actually a physiological response, uh, you know, just breathing in the air. What it does is it actually triggers serotonin. Um, and uh, so there's lots of research now on, um, uh, on the effects of breathing freely. Um, uh, basically what it does is it makes us, uh, it energizes us. So you have those two sides there where on the one hand going into uh, some sort of uh, arousal state and on the other hand, the physiological relief of removing the mask. The chains that I'm talking about then, you know, the, this idea that we're everywhere in chains, um, it can be interpreted at a physiological level where the chains are chemical, the chains are neurochemical, the chains are what 
the great affective neuroscientist Jack Panksepp wrote about. Um, and they are, what we're dealing with here is the dopamine chain. Now, um, I won't go into uh, uh, the full, I won't, I won't read you the full argument. It's, I'm going to write a blog on this for Susan uh, shortly. Um, but essentially, what Panksepp discovered, so, you know, he has these um, primitive emotion circuits. These are emotion circuits that we've inherited. Uh, we find homologs of them in, in animals. And uh, they are subcortical. They're deep within the limbic system. And he has, uh, he, has uh, he, he capitalizes the name of these. So one of them is the seeking system, capitalized. Uh, and that refers to the system triggered by dopamine. And another system that he uh, researched is called the rage system. So these are different systems. And uh, his big discovery is, quote, uh, and I'm quoting from one of his publications, when seeking is thwarted, rage is aroused. Anger is provoked by curtailing animals' freedom of action. And he did all kinds of research showing this. So the idea here is we have these two, uh, we have these two subcortical systems, one that's triggered by dopamine and the other that's triggered when that dopamine is blocked. Okay, so the dopamine causes us to seek. The dopamine, you trigger dopamine, and then you um, go after whatever the object was or the, you know, the, the target was that triggered the dopamine. And if something blocks you from, from that dopa, dopaminergic circuit, then your another closely related circuit deep within the subcortex is triggered called the rage system. Why? And the answer that Panksepp came up with is fascinating. And the answer is that the rage system produces what he called psychic energy. In other words, um, the rage system uh, floods us with epinephrine, um, gives us that it gives us that burst of that burst of energy that we need to overcome whatever the obstacle is that's preventing uh, preventing us from getting our dopamine target. So that's why these two systems work so closely together. Um, if you block if you block dopamine, then you produce uh, the anger necessary to overcome whatever that obstacle is. And that's very interesting for today, because if you think about it, uh, a vaccine passport is blocking the individual who uh, the individual who uh, is not is not fully vaccinated, blocking them from various dopaminergic urges, and so the rage is this ancient neurobiological phenomena that is triggered to overcome whatever the obstacle is. So in this case, the health professional becomes for the subcortex. Subcortex is a very primitive system. It doesn't stop and think about, you know, the incredible uh, uh, heroism of these health professionals or how important they are to our well-being, how much we owe to them. 
It's this is a primitive blind system, and all it sees is an obstacle that must be overcome. There's a deeper issue here, um, which I'll come back to. I think in my next um, uh, pod, in my next podcast, and that's uh, another epidemic, and that's an epidemic of of kindled amygdala, an epidemic of um, our dopamine system constantly being triggered, which is constantly making us vulnerable to the rage circuit deep in our brain. But I thought I'd end with coming back to my dad. Um, my dad retired very early and uh, started to travel around the world. And he and my mom went um, to very exotic third world destinations. Uh, and at the time, I thought that my father was being uh, driven by dopamine, um, that uh, he had a strong urge for novelty. Um, and we know that novelty is incredible for, for triggering dopamine secretion. But um, at the end of his life, he said something uh, very sad. And uh, it really made me re reframe why he had been traveling. Um, he was dying. And um, one of the last conversations we had was he said to me, you know, son, um, all societies are the same. And I realized that in a way, he had been living out uh, Rousseau's choice. Um, he didn't like he didn't like the tyranny of social convention, so he was trying to find that society in which he could feel free. And what he was telling me was that he hadn't found it. And I think that at the end of his life, um, he had he had accepted, or he had come to believe that he too had come to believe that maybe freedom is an illusion. And as I listened to this, I realized that I thoroughly rejected that, that feeling. I thoroughly believed in freedom as our human birthright. Um, I was not prepared to, I was not prepared to go down this Rousseauan uh, you know, route to uh, disappointment. Um, but to say that freedom is our birthright is to say that it's, it's an aspiration. It's something that we dream of. It's something that we try um, throughout our life to become more and more free. Um, what drives us here is both neurobiological and psychological. And one of Rousseau's greatest insights was in order for me to be free, everyone has to be free. In order for any of us to uh, reach that psychological level where we truly can choose, we have to all have the same right. We all have to all listen to each other. So we cannot become polarized. We cannot descend to the level of violence. Uh, now, there's one big difference between what Rousseau was saying and what Selfreg is saying. Uh, because what we're doing in self-reg is we're actually uh, we're actually working on the tools that make this 
viable. We are not just looking at the why, but then we look at the how. How do I do this? How do I get myself into that blue brain state? How do I help my society get into that blue brain state where we don't see these eruptions of violence, where we find that there are constructive ways of dealing with frustration, of dealing with the huge challenges that face us. Now, I think what I'd like to do in my next podcast is come back to this um, because uh, it does feel to me like um, we are uh, just immersed in a society in which the hook model is everywhere. And it is exhausting. It is using up all of our energy. It is sending us as individuals and as a group into red brain. And when we go into red brain, that's when we become vulnerable to the rage circuit. So that's where we're going to go. Um, I hope you find this uh, as not just interesting, but as important as I do. Uh, I am, uh, you know, I am the child that my father wanted. I believe deeply in, in the overriding value of freedom, the overriding value of being able to choose. So um, I'd like to thank you all for listening to this podcast, and I'd like to invite you to subscribe to it. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's this podcast is being brought to you by Self-Reg Global. And if you'd like to learn more about this exciting initiative, you can go on to our website, selfregglobal.com, or you can follow us on social media. Thanks, everyone.